I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today we're here with Ryan Breedwell. Uh, Ryan is a wealth management and infinite banking consultant. Um, and I think I'm sure any introduction I would give you, Ryan, will not do it justice. So I'm gonna kind of let you tell us, you know, your story and everything that you're doing, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you for having me. Uh, thank you for the intro. That was well uh, said. Um, I'll give a little bit of my background and then I can kind of get into answering some questions and stuff like that. That'd be awesome. um, I am, as Jason said, I'm Ryan Breedwell. I'm an investment advisor. Um, I am living right now in California, Northern California, in a city called Rockland, which is outside of Sacramento. Uh, my firm has about $2.3 in assets under management as of market close today. We do all sorts of uh, stuff with people's money. We help them manage their money. We help them advise them on their real estate. We do tax planning. And then we also do infinite banking uh, consulting for them as well. Uh, my background and my specialty is working with real estate investors, ultra high net and high net worth individuals, and then kind of using that insurance product like we've talked about to kind of lend against purchase real estate so they can increase their passive income uh, while also kind of earning interest on their money while they're using it. That's kind of the whole idea of the infinite banking. Um, I inherited uh, the firm from my father back in 2015. He's still active in the firm. Uh, I actually just hung out with him a couple hours ago. Um, and we have about 17,000 clients nationwide. Right now we're up to about six offices, two in Arizona, one in California, one in Texas, one in Arkansas, and one in Colorado. Very nice. Very yeah. nice. F family business. That's great. And uh, I, I told you sort of before we started recording, but I, I'm very excited about this topic and I, I will probably geek out a little bit, but that's cool that, uh, you know, sort of to get that introduction from your father. So yeah, <clears throat> what, how does that work? I feel like that's actually, I mean, that's a sort of different world, you know, my family, no one in my family came from anything <laughs> along those lines. And so how did that work for you? Was it just kind of something that you grew up seeing him doing and you went through, you know, picked it up and then became passionate about it and kept going? Yeah, kind of the way that it worked in my house was I was always conditioned. My dad was kind of expecting like, hey, you'll potentially maybe take over or be a part of the company one day. So we talked about money quite often. Finances were a big discussion in our day to day. My dad talked about how much money he made, what he was spending his money on, why it was important. Um, I was given an allowance. This is a funny thing. And a lot of, you know, my family was considered well off and they were and, they, and my, my parents still are. Um, but when we were growing up, all of my friends who, if you were to compare maybe our family dynamics, my family maybe had a little more discretionary income to spend. Mm -hmm. They had far bigger um, allowances than I did. I think from my high, my, my, my dad wanted me to play baseball, focus on baseball in school. So my job was if I got good grades and I played sports and I was giving a good effort there on the field and then off the field in the classroom, my dad was going to support me. Um, by giving me some money for, you know, to socialize, which is yeah. pretty common for sports players. I ended up playing a little bit in college as well. Um, I think I was getting $20 every Friday from the time I was a freshman in high school, all the way until I was essentially my senior year. My mom kind of, you know, she'd toss me a couple bucks <laughs> every now and then, but my dad was pretty much trying to hard show me like, you don't have anything and you have to learn how to have your lifestyle within your means. Your means is $20 every week. And that should be enough for you to do whatever you want to do. You got all the food in the house. You can have people over at the pool. You don't. So that was kind of the idea. So from a young age, uh, managing money, managing my own finances and being frugal and prudent with our purchases was very, very, very big deal. So that's kind of how I grew up uh, around it. 
fast forward to college, I graduated. And actually the first thing that I did was like, you know what? I want to go see if I can make it on my own. A silly concept. <laughs> but I said, you know what? I'm going to go try to find a, some sort of finance job because that was what I studied. I studied business management and finance and marketing in uh, college. And the only place I could find to hire me, I was living in Santa Rosa at the time, which is kind of 35 minutes north of Napa. I went to Sonoma State. There was a, a place in Corta Madera, which is right outside of San, uh, San Francisco, right across the bridge. Yeah. The commute for me would have been 52 minutes one way with no traffic and about an hour and a half back because of traffic. And that's the only no job I could find. Yeah. yeah. It's the only job I could find. And I kid you not, for a year and about a half, I would say, from uh, 2014 to mid 2015, I did that commute. And after the first year of doing, you know, spending three and a half, four hours a day in the car, driving back home, essentially working six days a week, waking up to go to sleep and then do it again um, and making, I think, $57,000 in my first year. And that was like, whoa, you did so good. <laughs> I was like, huh, maybe I should ask dad if this is, you know, something I should consider. Right. Uh, went back to the chalkboard, figured out I could have probably done a little bit better for myself, got all my uh, insurance and investment licenses over the next coming years and took over. Uh, like I said, in October of 2015 as VP at the firm. Fantastic. So that's my whole little, I, I thought I was going to be smart. You know, I thought I was going to be crafty and it kind of, <laughs> kind of snapped back and hit me and said, well, hey, the reality is life is hard, right. but it showed me how hard you have to work to get a little bit of money. And yeah. that was a really, even though I, I look back at that and I was like, that was silly. I'm really glad that I did that because it taught me how valuable and how blessed I am to have inherited and got this business from my dad. I joke with people that I'm nepotism at its finest, but I, I cannot think of where I would be if I, if my dad didn't put the work in when he was young and my age to get to where he is and then give me the ability to take over. So it's a, it was a huge eye opener for me. Back yeah. Then. yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess it's not, necessarily what I what I thought we were going to talk about today but I actually think these are some really important points because I think one of the things that people in general in society are missing is financial education right financial literacy all of that 100%. and so you were in a very fortunate position to one you know have a father sort of in the industry two he taught you right like he didn't just say hey here's here's all the cars, the boat, whatever it is, you know, here's yeah, all these nope. like lavish stuff. It's like, I'm going to teach you how to have money because yeah. otherwise it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you have, right. You can just blow it. <laughs> you can blow yeah. a little bit of money. You can blow a lot of money. It's not, right. uh, it, it's easy to do. And so I, I think that that stuff is, maybe I need to get your, talk to your dad at some point, because I, that is something that I, with my young children really sort of I'm worried about it, right? I want to make sure that I do it right. I don't want them to be entitled. I I don't want them to, I want them to, to work and know the value of everything, but I also want them to do it in a smart way. So I, he I think encapsulates it and says to me, because I've asked him, because you're giving me the exact same response a lot of other people do, because what he did was not easy, you know? Yeah. But he said, I was a hundred percent focused on you being successful, not being your friend. My job was to be your parent, not your friend. Yeah. You would eventually, if you, if I did it right, you would eventually look back and be grateful. And here I am today. And he was hundred percent right. I, 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 you know, people ask all the time who has an epic father right here. My dad's pretty great. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I know we're going off on a tangent here, but again, a really it's important a, thing to be, important tangent. Yeah. be, yeah, to be grateful for, for what you have and, and where it can take you. Because when I, took over uh, in 2015, where we were then to where we are today, it's almost 15 fold. So it's not like I've sat back also right. and not done anything with the company. We have yeah. grown the company substantially. We've made a national presence for ourselves in that time. And that's just six years ago. So I'm really, really, really excited for what the next five, 10, 15 plus years hold. Um, and to kind of see that, because I also have a younger brother who's uh, playing baseball at University of San Francisco, California. And he's in the CFP program there. So he is going to also come into the business. So I told him, you either got pro baseball or working for me, one or the other. 
Right, right. You could probably argue which one's going to be more lucrative in the long I don't run. know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> He'd have to make it really big probably to make more money in baseball than, than he would, uh, you know, sort of join in the family business. So no, that's, so. that's fantastic. And I really do think it's, it's a, a testament to your dad and it, it it's, and yourself. I mean, in terms of, you know, you took it and you, you tried your own thing, but, but ultimately, right. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. You just, you made yeah. the wheel better, maybe, you know, joining yeah, forces yeah. with your dad. Yeah, we improved upon processes that had already been working, kind of like the world around us does all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, we did cell phone, social media, marketing on social media. Um, it's funny because my dad always would scratch. us like, how do you run your business not being in the office? This is pre-COVID. And now he's kind of learned how to do it outside of the office. Yeah. So I'm calling, I'm looking at his calendar all the time now. And I'm like, wow, he's out of state, but he's, he's has appointments, but he's out of state and he's yep. with my mom and they're traveling. <laughs> and that's, he deserves that. He's a young man. He's in his mid fifties. Um, so he deserves that, but that's, it's funny because that's kind of where we've taken it. We've downsized the office and saved money there, but have more offices and more locations now to do things like law, uh, the law firm is out of uh, Arkansas the media center is in Tempe. We're headquartered in Scottsdale for tax purposes. So there's a lot of, it just allowed us to be more efficient from a, from a um, kind of COGS perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was gonna say just increased efficiencies by sort of yeah. downsizing those things. Um, well, then, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, what exactly it is you do. And I know that's a broad topic. So sure. how would you, maybe if you were approaching a potential client, yeah, if we were in the elevator and you asked me what I did and I gave you yeah. my elevator pitch, I love that saying, the <laughs> elevator pitch. Right. Um, I help people manage their money in a professional way, meaning anybody can go to TD Ameritrade, Charles Schwab, Vanguard and open an account and buy an investment. There's no doubt. And I encourage people to do so. But when you want to take your investment game to the next level and you want a professional money manager to step in, excuse me, that's what I do for people. And I help them make choices that they may not know how to make without me. Right. We have analysts. I think our cumulative investment advisory board experience is over 360 years. Um, we have quantitative analysts that are uh, nationally and world recognized like Dr. Chin Fu. We have David Young, who was over at PIMCO working on a multi-billion dollar fund that now works over with us on our funds. So we have a really robust investment advisory team. So one of the things we do is we help people manage their assets outside of work retirement or anything that's just in their bank, other discretionary income. The other thing that we help people do is keep on track so that if they want to retire at 50, if they want to retire at 67, if they want to retire at 44, we can quantify to them how close they are on track with the percentage likelihood of them doing that. So we can know that if we're making decisions that are quanti um, quantifiable, hey, I want to retire. I cannot tell you how many times I talk to people that are 35 and they're like, I want to retire at 45. And I'm like, I want you to retire at 45 too. There's a way to do that. But do you understand, you know, with money in the stock market, you know, it takes a million dollars to make $50,000 a year. I would argue it takes about that with real estate too, unless you got commercial properties. So it's really hard to make money, make money. You need a lot of money, a lot of asset value to generate passive income. Yep. A lot of people don't understand that because that's not taught. And again, that goes back to education. If it started 20 years down the road, it would be a lot less to deal with when people got to the finish line. Yep. Um, and then secondary to that, a lot of my clients and a lot of um, our firm's clients are real estate investors. And what separates us is, although I don't charge to advise on real estate or charge or get paid anything to have people buy real estate, we love real estate as a part of somebody's portfolio. It just does things that other investments can't do, just like stocks do things that real estate can't do. How complementary are they when you have them together? Um, I like to try to help people get as close to a 0% tax bracket legally as they can possible. And part of that, a lot of the times includes a qualified account, real estate, non-qualified investments like real estate, and then an insurance policy that we use for infinite banking, which I think we're going to go into more depth today. So those are kind of the main ways we were going up about 110 floors there. But those are the main ways that, that I tend to help people um, in my area of expertise. We don't do health insurance. 
We don't do auto or home insurance. We strictly do specifically designed infinite banking life policies that can be leveraged against to help purchase real estate or other assets while you are trying to save uh, for your retirement and for your other investments. Gotcha. Okay. And I, I think, you know, the, I, I feel like you hear a lot of people that will say, oh, you know, investing in stocks is the way to go. Real estate's risky or vice versa. Investing mm -hmm. in real estate is risky, is, is great. Uh, investing in stocks is risky. And I feel like people tend to, and I mean, maybe this is just what gets portrayed in the media, but a lot of people seem to sort of say it's one or the other. And I, I'm, I'm happy, again, from my, from my own standpoint to hear you say that, you know, sort of having all of it makes sense. Because I think it does. It's like if you take everything and put it in real estate or you take everything and put it in stock market, you're, you're kind of left at probably a higher risk level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let, let's talk about infinite banking because I think, I mean, for example, I, I have some life insurance policies, my wife mm -hmm. and I, I don't know how, or if I could even use them for infinite banking, like I don't know that process. So if, if I were to come to you, you know, someone comes and says, I, I want to figure this out. I want to use it to my advantage. You know, kind of, how does that process play out? Yeah. So there's. Uh, infinite banking all revolves around overfunding a permanent life insurance policy and then loaning against that insurance policy and potentially earning an arbitrage positive, hopefully, above and beyond your loan cost. So that's really, and a lot of people don't want to say what it is. You know, the, the thing that's hard about infinite banking is people want to dance around that it's an insurance. A lot of people say that you take a withdrawal. You don't take a withdrawal. You take a loan. That's how, that's Internal Revenue Code 7702 is what governs all life insurance. It will tell you right there, you have to take a loan. And ding, ding, ding. That's why it's tax-free. Because have you ever gotten a home loan? There's no 1099 that gets sent to you because you got a loan. That is why it's tax-free. The idea behind it is if I can get a loan from my policy, my bank, you know, because that's what my insurance policy is. It's self-banking. If I have capitalized my bank enough to have enough cash value to then lend against it, most insurance companies will tell you, hey, you have a loan cost. Uh, the insurance policies that I generally use have a cost between three and a half and capped at 6%. So that's going to be your maximum cost and your minimum cost. So right up front, you say, hey, I'm going to get a three and a half to 6% loan from myself. That's how the insurance companies make money because they're in this game too. They're going to make money just like you are going to make money. What you are needing to do in order to have an infinite banking policy is you need the, the, um, the interest paid to that amount of money while you're using it, the loaned money, to earn more interest than the spread is on the loan. So I'll give you an example. Right now on my policy, the loan cost is 4%. When it hits its new policy anniversary, it'll drop down to 3.5% because that's the current rate. But when my policy anniversary came around, which is in October, it was 4% last October. So if I took any money out of my policy, for an example, $100,000, I would have a 4% loan cost on that $100,000. Now, over this past year, my policy has made about 11.5%. We're going to make that a 10% for an even number. So I can just do it for an example purpose. So if I took $100,000 out of my policy and I had a million dollars sitting in there, the mechanics of it are the policy will continue to earn interest as if the money was not loaned, as long as you make more interest than the loan cost. So if I made a 10% return over that year, I'm going to make 10% on the full million dollars. They're gonna act like I have a million dollars in my policy. But on the side of that, they're gonna say, well, Ryan has a loan out on hundred grand of it. So we're gonna apply 10% to that, but less four. So he's gonna make 6% interest on that money, even though he took that money out. And let's say I bought a duplex or a triplex, and now I'm cash flowing three or four grand a month on that. Maybe and likely in seven, eight, nine months, after I refurbish that, get a renter in that and refinance it, I'm going to take all my money back out, put it back into the policy and rinse and repeat. And that is the idea of infinite banking. The negatives are 
there's a potential that you could, because the insurance company could raise the, let's say it was a 6% loan cost, my maximum loan cost. And my policy only makes a 5% interest. I'm going to be on the hook for 1%. They're going to deduct that out of my cash value. Still okay. though, as you know, being in real estate, hard money is normally seven, eight, nine, right. 10% right. plus points. Yeah. And you have to have a good deal in order to get it. Yep. The, the uh, form to get the money is one page, has no underwriting, and you get to decide how much you want to take out and if you ever pay it back. It's a non-termed loan. Just every year on your policy anniversary, they're going to reassess the interest rate. It's a variable rate, but you know the maximum cost will be six and the minimum cost would be three and a half. The one thing that makes me a little different, as I was telling you in our first uh, phone call, is there's two kind of schools of thought on uh, permanent insurance and infinite banking. The original way to do infinite banking is with whole life insurance. So anytime anybody ever comes to me and says infinite banking, like I need a whole life and dividend paying whole life insurance policy, because if you Google it, that's what you're going to see all over the Internet. I'm an outlier in my industry because I use universal life personally for myself and for my clients. Why do I do that? A couple of reasons. The contract is a lot less rigid. That means that there's less guarantees, but it also means that there's more potential in the policy. And I, do, I would never buy an insurance policy for the guarantees. I don't, I'm not buying it. Legally, I am buying it for the death benefit, right? but I'm really leveraging an in, in, internal revenue code to use this policy as a banking. So I'm not buying the policy for the guarantees. I'm buying it for what is my loan cost going to be? Looks like I can lock it in pretty low, never higher than 6%. And if my policy has the potential to make nine, 10, 11%, I have a two, three, four, 5% positive arbitrage. Yep. Flipping to the whole life side, you're gonna rely on a dividend, which is just a rate paid by the insurance company. Generally speaking, too, those loan rates are not capped. And I have seen like, there's a very popular group that sells, you know, like Lafayette Life is a very popular insurance policy, AUL, American United Life, uh, Mass Mutual. But those policies, because they have so many guarantees, are loaded with fees, premium loads like as high as 15%, which means if you give them a dollar, 15 cents goes in their pocket. My policy has a premium load too, but it's 5%. That's pretty reasonable. Mutual fund A share would be a 5% front end load on that. That'd be expensive, but all insurance has premium loads. So it's a yeah. low premium load. Um, they don't allow you to stop paying your premium or increase your premium or lower your premium. You are locked in to paying premiums a lot of times for at least 20 years. And yeah. most of the time till age 85, 100 or 100 plus, which is silly because I want to stop paying to my policy and have it pay me. Right. And then the other thing is, they assume the same dividend will be paid forever, which if you just Google whole life insurance dividend history, you will look like a plane you would not want to be on. And that's because dividends have gone down and down and down because they're reliant on interest rates, heavily reliant on interest rates. And when whole life insurance got popular was in the mid eighties, when interest rates were sky high. And when you bought a whole life insurance back policy back in the late 80s, early 90s, they showed you getting paid a 10% dividend forever. Because what they will always do is show you the current dividend scale paid forever on a linear return. And I don't know if you know about linear returns, but they're just normally not very accurate. Right. So if we assume the same rate of return compounded forever, it's not going to be extremely accurate. But that's what they'll do. And all over those illustrations, you'll see please use the midpoint assumption because the dividend will likely decrease in the future and the values will not be paid. Yeah. And so that's, that's the main reason I just don't use whole life. It's just too rigid. And my clients, a lot of times need to stop paying their premiums. Like last year during COVID, a lot of my clients needed to waive their premiums for four or five months and then pick it back up. And they have the ability to do that. The whole life insurance policy, until the moratoriums went in for the insurance companies, there was a lot of people struggling to pay their premiums. Yeah, That's another reason because life happens, you have to have flexibility in your uh, plans, all of your plans. So, thank you for the explanation. I mean, that, that's actually probably the most, although that was a lot, probably the most yeah. simple way I've heard it 
explained. And I, I didn't know, I thought you only could do whole life insurance. I really thought that was the only way to do it. So, I mean, that to me, that's a tremendous advantage because the whole life premiums are generally much higher. Correct. And, and you, you have to pay them. Like if you say, Hey, show me paying premiums for 25 years and you do that, you are golden handcuffed into paying those premiums for 25 years. Right. Right. And then again, the crediting method is different. Whole life insurance. I'm relying on the insurance company to pay me a dividend based on their mortality experience. How many people died last year? Yeah. How well their investments did in their general fund and how much they need to keep off the top and how little they can pay me to still be happy. I know like Northwestern Mutual has a 4.9 or 5% dividend with an 8% loan cost. Man, it just makes no sense. Yeah. Why would you put your money into something that you immediately are going to have to pay 3% on? So universal life uses a market index with no risk. Generally the S&P 500, or there's like another index that I like to use sometimes that's an actively managed index by Fidelity. Fidelity is a big investment company and they'll actually actively manage your fund for you between stocks and bonds. Most people just say, hey, if I have no risk and I can get up to a 10%, 12%, 13% return from the S&P 500, I'll just do that because the market in most years makes money. The other thing is, unlike like a, if we bought a stock for $100 like of Apple and the market took a dive 50% down and our Apple stock went down by 50%, we need to get back up to 100 to be in the money. When you index your policy with a universal life, um, structure, you get an annual reset. So let's imagine we bought at 50 or hundred and now we're at 50. We're not going to make any money that year. And if we took a loan, we wouldn't make any positive arbitrage on our loan. That's kind of the risk, but that 50 is our new starting number. And as long as there's growth from that 50 up, we will make money. And in most years, the market goes down over about a nine to 12 month period and then starts to go back up over a long period of time. Yeah. So zero tends to be kind of your hero in those uh, cases. Things I would always avoid if you ever hear uh, Infinite Banking talked about is if the one thing that you can tell when somebody's, excuse my language here, but bullshitting is if they tell you you can make uninterrupted compounding interest. Does not exist. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Or you would have already heard about it. Everybody would do it. It would be right. so common. Right. Everybody would do it. Yeah. And the other thing is if you hear some, you know, story of like oh hey you know banks are being you know sly and doing things that you don't know about and banks have insurance banks do have insurance but let me just clear the air on this banks have insurance because they're required by law to cover their health <laughs> health benefits with them so that if something happens to the bank and they're insolvent there's money in the insurance policy to cover their benefits yeah. so there's a lot of misinformation and um fool's gold on the internet, things that look shiny and real and they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the main thing that I, one of the reasons that I got so into this over the past five years and why I'm nationally recognized as one of the top people in the United States to do it is because most of the people just do it, they just do it wrong. I mean, I just can, they do it wrong. Whole life insurance pays a higher commission. That's one of the main reasons also it's sold. Yeah. And it pays 10 times the renewal rate. We get paid renewals. 1% on universal life or 10 to 8 to 12% on whole life. I mean, what would you do? Yeah. So it's just, that's the biggest, nobody wants to talk about elephant in the room that nobody knows about unless right. you have an insurance license. And where I get to come from is I'm a fiduciary. I'm required by law to do it's in people's best interest. Yeah. And I have to be honest with them. And so I tell them, hey, we could get a 0%. We could not make you know, money on our loan this year. But in most years, we are going to make a lot of interest on our loans if we take them out, two, three, four percent. That'll way offset one year where we don't have a, a positive arbitrage on it. And I would much rather take that potential to get that interest yeah. than settle for the best insurance policy in right now. If it's whole life, you are going to be eking out a meager one percent positive arbitrage, but you'll be locked in to that policy, which has that extremely rigid contract. I like to have flexibility in my policy, and so do my clients. That's why I use universal life over whole life insurance. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Um, a couple of questions. You had sure. mentioned overfunding 
Yeah. Uh, one of the first things says overfunding the, the life insurance policy. What do you mean by that? Does that mean you have to throw in a bunch of money at the beginning? Is it like a, a deposit or something? Or how does that work? You can design the policy any way that the client wants. There'll be caveats to then how it can be used. But generally speaking, for both whole life and universal, we're, they are under the umbrella of permanent insurance. So I'm going to say permanent insurance when I'm talking about them both as a whole. Permanent insurance works in a very general way. There is a cost of insurance that the insurance company has to recoup. There's a surrender schedule, meaning they're going to limit the amount of money you can use in your policy for a period of time. And there's going to be premium taxes, premium loads, and cost of insurance that have to be paid. So you want to go to the insurance company when you buy permanent insurance and almost do what you do opposite when you buy term insurance. When we buy a term insurance policy, if I have a dollar, I mean, I want the most coverage I can get for that dollar. It has no cash value. Hopefully it has some living benefits if I have a heart attack or need long-term care or something like that. Yeah. It's to hedge risk. That's why it's so cheap. But when I go to an insurance company and I'm trying to do infinite banking, I'm almost going to say the exact opposite. For this $1, what's the least amount of insurance you can give me? So I can use the policy as kind of a pass-through for, for lack of a better term and put that into the sub-account that's invested. I can forego a lot of those costs and just put it to be invested, put it into that without buying insurance with it. The reason it's hard for people to, or agents to do that is when we design policies that way, we get paid on the amount of death benefit that's sold. So we have to already go in and say, what's the least amount of death benefit I can have with this dollar? Or let me translate that to an agent speak. What's the least amount of commission you can pay me for this person giving right. me their money? Right. So that, that's one big reason why I see a lot of incorrectly designed policies. Second, you have to, there's specific ways in universal life, and then there's specific ways in whole life that you have to design the policy so that it would work to the best of its ability. Um, a lot of people don't do that. There's sometimes where it's inappropriate to have a level death benefit. Sometimes it's appropriate to have an increasing death benefit, then level it out. Sometimes it's appropriate to do a return of premium death benefit. It depends. You have to look at what's best for the client. You also have to know if you're going to run a cash value accumulation test and then have the IRS use that test. Or if you're going to take money out of it, you probably want to do guideline premium tests. So there's a lot of things that go into the design of a policy. Yeah. And unfortunately, most of the guys just got a 60% of their insurance license and they know it pays a commission. And they're going to go jaw jack something they heard from somebody on the internet that doesn't necessarily work. Uh, so that's overfunding is the one of the biggest keys. And then second to that, if there's a, that's the key, the engine is the loan cost. And then the crediting, how much am I going to have to pay to leverage this money? I still have not ever seen a whole life policy that tells the loan interest rate. I could, I reserve the right to be wrong because I don't look at them day in and day out. I look at them quite often, but they're just not as transparent as universal life as well. Universal life tells you all the loan costs right on the policy, right up front. And they also tell you they're capped. Most whole life is not capped, which scares me because in a rising interest rate environment, my loan cost is just going to continue to go up and up and up. Yeah. And if my dividend is not going up at that same pace and historically it has not, I'm going to be on the hook for a lot more and more money. So that's, that's another thing, again, that's important, but not to digress off the overfunding. When we overfund that policy, what it allows it to do is earn more and more and more cash value that we can then lend against to use for our purchases of real estate or what have you, other, other investment opportunities. Maybe there's a leak in the roof and you want to take it out. There's a lot of different things you can use it for. Okay. But that would be one of, the, one of the main things, minus using it for income when you're retired as well. Okay. So, well, that, that makes sense when you, so I guess the best example I can think to, to maybe explain how I want to ask this question is if you're using, I, I feel like it's pretty well, I don't know that's well known out in the world, but within the real estate world, it's known that you can use, for example, an IRA to invest in real estate, a self-directed IRA. Self-directed, yes. Yep. So, but that money stays within the IRA, right? Correct. So any cash flow you're making 
it's within the area. It's it's not a bad thing. It's just it's not no, like you can take the mechanics of it. spend it, right? Yeah, and it's you lose just, a lot of the tax benefits of the IRA by it being self-directed because you gain the benefit of being able right. to use it for real estate. Always a give and a take in, in almost every investment. So I guess my question then is in in relation to these the infinite banking with with life insurance policies, it, is it the same sort of thing where the money is it just has to keep going back into that policy and building that policy where you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, you can't spend the cash flow that you're making on your real estate. You could. I think what you're kind of saying is, and tell me if I'm hearing this correctly, do I have to fund it forever or can it eventually support itself while I'm still using it? Am I getting along? Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, that's a, a good way to, to put it. Yeah. So a lot of the times you can tell, I ask my clients, hey, how long do you think you want to fund this? A lot of my clients will say, I want to pay into it till I retire because they're also, they, they, I show them the benefits of the income on the back end. Yeah. But the other thing you can do is say, I want to pay into it till I'm 50, but for the first seven years, the first five years, the first 10 years, in order to capitalize my bank, I'm going to, I need to put in $50,000 a year for five years and then drop it down to 10K a year. And then you say, okay, great. Now I know that's how much money is going into the policy. Let me go design that properly. So you go to the software, you say, hey, we need to have a minimum non-modified endowment contract face. That's the minimum. And then we need to do this premium amount for 10 years, this premium amount for this many years. And then when we get to this this year, convert a lot of the death benefit back to cash value because he's going to take it for income now. He doesn't. He has plenty of insurance. He'll be in his 50s. His kids will be grown. The money now is worth more than the money then. And oh, there's ancillary benefits with long-term care and so and so. And so you just get a lot of back-end value. The thing that tends to be really good about infinite banking is you do a lot with $1. You capitalize your own bank. You set yourself up with a a secondary tax-free income stream for whenever you retire. And you set yourself up with a a tool to help you build your real estate portfolio. It does three, excuse me, three things with $1, which is really strong. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so so it is a a similar to that, you know, structure of the self-directed IRA in the sense that it's not like, oh, I have a hundred thousand in my bank account. I invested in a syndication. I get cash flow monthly, and then I can do whatever I want with that. Basically, it, it's more like you're building this for the retirement phase of that of that account. You are. You can. It ultimately will be used for that. But what you can use it for in the early years, like you were alluding to, is to bank off of for your real estate. I would say the one highlight that whole life has over universal life is that they have higher early liquidity. That's how they get people kind of more attracted to it too. Most of the time when you put a deposit into whole life insurance, you can use a lot of, if not all of that deposit. But the caveat to that is you've just signed yourself up to pay premiums for 45 years and you're going to retire in 21. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that is universal life generally takes one to two years of seasoning. And I say that conservatively. A lot of the times my clients are using their policy in the second year early on, but I just say that conservatively for the benefit of having flexibility of cooling their premiums off, increasing their premiums again without having to take out a new insurance policy at an older age, um, earn a higher rate of interest without having an insurance company step in between and block that interest. That's what you you want. And generally speaking, you have to ask yourself, do I want to have a crock pot or a microwave mentality with this? Unfortunately, most people take the microwave mentality and you will get microwave results. If you take the crock pot mentality, you will get crock pot results, which take more time, but normally yield a better quality product. So that's those are that's another thing I want to point out too, is that's where whole life would probably appeal to a lot of people up front. Ah oh, man. I have to put in $50,000 for three years and then I can use it in year three based on what the illustration is telling me. Sorry, there's my dog scout. Um, And a lot of the times the answer is conservatively, yes. If we make a 5% rate of return or a 3% rate of return compounded, but if we make 11%, that's like us making 5% in two years. So that's like us getting to year. So again, I'm very conservative on my estimates so that my clients have errors in their favor. 
that sometimes backfires, but I never want to show somebody what's the best we can do forever, like a whole life insurance illustration does. If we get this dividend rate forever, this is what we will do. Um, I like to say, hey, if we have a potential to make 11 and a half, but we get about five and a half on average over the life of the policy, this is what we could expect. Yeah. Those are quantifiable assumptions. And then what I can back it up with and say, hey, in over the past 25 years, the policy has averaged 7.9 or 8.1%. So I have something to back that up with. And if we make that average, that's two more percent compounded in your favor. That's going to be a big deal. So it's just having an honest, open conversation, going over the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when you do that, you can make an informed decision. A lot of people are just kind of sold the good, and they don't know the bad or the ugly. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, and I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a complex topic, right? There's a, there's a lot to it, and so it's, it's also finding someone who will really kind of explain it to you as, as you're doing right now, and sort of break it down. I think it is, it is hard to understand, you know, as a I, I've even been trying to figure this stuff out and it's hard to understand. So I, I get, you know, sort of where people are coming from and, and, and if they're sold, this is the easy way, then they do that. Um, I guess another question on that topic. So mm -hmm. I think I, I've heard before that you can have an insurance policy like on your children, basically anyone yeah. in the family uh, can have the policy. So as a, as a father, you can fund a policy for your children to then use for real estate and things like, am yep. I correct yep. in that? The IRS says that the owner of the insurance policy is the one who has access and rights to the cash value. You would have to have insurance yourself. And there's not really, it's a gray area. You are supposed to have it, but there's no law saying you have to. But a lot of insurance companies will ask if the parents have a substantial amount of insurance before they insure their children, yep. obviously to forego any sort of, you know, ill intent. Um, but most of the time, yes. The thing you want to be careful on is um, not getting too many policies on too many people, because then you're, you know, even the universal life, you'd be pinned into the minimum premium. They'll tell you up for hand putting a thousand, you're on the hook for $112 a month out of that thousand. So if you have 10 of those, now you're on the hook for a thousand dollars a month. And in yeah. You have to make sure you keep that in your in the back of your mind that there is levels of commitment and it is somewhat kind of like a mortgage. It's your bank. You're trying to capitalize your bank. You want to keep putting money into it so you can take money out of it. Um, I'm just the same idea as your retirement accounts, except you're going to use them in the short to midterm versus the yeah. long term. So yes, um, just some ideas that I've seen though and heard that I, I probably wouldn't agree with. I would never take a loan out on a to pay for a depreciating asset. So a very popular one that I see is to take a loan out to pay for your car. And I would question somebody, why would you take a loan with a cost to pay for a loan with a cost on something that's depreciating? It's not appreciating, nor is it going to earn you cash flow. It is simply going to sit in your driveway and take you from A to B. If you would get a regular loan, maybe put two, three, 4% down and pay the payment on it. Just earn more interest than that loan cost. And that's fine to leverage your money and do that. Sometimes you have to do that in this world. I have a mortgage on my house. It's okay to pay interest on money when it makes sense. I get tax benefits, I get equity, but on depreciating assets, I don't know why people, well, I know why people, because it sounds sexy, but a lot of that times that stuff just doesn't work. It just doesn't. Again, everybody would do it if it did. It would be so popular. Everybody would do it. And I'm here to tell you right now, infinite banking is not for everybody. It's for people that make a good amount of money and have good discretionary income that can afford to capitalize their banks, maybe with a lump sum and then heavy premiums. But a lot of times just with really heavy premium payments for at least five, seven, 10 years before they can then pull them back to something more modest. Okay. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's a lot of great information. I think <laughs> there's probably a million questions about this and I don't want to take up your entire day. I, I, I appreciate you kind of going into those explanations. I think actually that's very helpful, uh, certainly helpful to me and I think will be helpful to a lot of the listeners. Um, Ryan, I, I just like to ask you a couple questions then uh, that are sort of my standard for end of podcast type of questions. Uh, the name of the podcast is, is Know Your Why. And so I always like to ask people kind of 
what's your why, what, what drives you? I know we've, we've talked a bit about family and things like that, but uh, what, what really kind of keeps you going? My, my wife, obviously that's my family right now. I don't have any kids. Um, so my wife and my little dog, you just saw, um, that's a good motivator, but really for me, um, why I do my career and what motivates me to get up every day and do this. Cause at this point, I don't really need to, it's a want, um, I like seeing the plan set up and I like seeing them work. And I like the feedback from people when it works. I have a desk in my office uh, in Sacramento. It's probably 35 feet long and maybe about four feet deep. And it's full of thank you cards. Uh, probably 40 or 50 of them from clients that have handwritten me thank you cards from people that I came in and I told them they didn't need my help for people that I got out of really sticky situations. And for me, that is my why for, for the podcast uh, sake. Um, I like helping people out. I like getting people into a right frame of mind for good holistic financial planning and showing them that there really is a way to do it the way that you want to do it. You just have to make sure you don't run into somebody that's trying to jam everybody into a side line. There's a way to do proper holistic financial planning. You can be real estate heavy. You can be stock heavy. You can be insurance heavy. You just have to complement it with other things. I just don't think there's one right answer to anything. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I think I'm sure that, you know, sort of the gratitude of, pe you know, setting people on the right path and, and just having them you know, feels good. That. I think that's, yeah, it feels good. I, yeah, it feels good. I like when I get cards from my clients at work. I mean, it's, it's a nice, it's like, I'm happy to help anyway, but just having them, you know, take that extra second to be like, yeah, you really, really made us feel good, I think is, is great. Um, so maybe tell us, tell the listeners something about yourself that maybe isn't common knowledge, a hobby, uh, you know, special skill, something, something outside of, of work. Absolutely. Uh, I am a huge wino. I love wine. Um, I'm in a couple wine clubs in Napa. I have a cult wine club that I'm a part of that we get little special bottles of wine. So I'm always like, I mean, even today I got an email that there's a very special wine that I get all of. And I was like, Oh, I gotta get one bottle really quick. So I like to collect it. But again, it almost goes back to the same thing with my investments. The reason I like wine is because it's shared with food. And I think food is a very universal language. Everybody loves food and it's good to yeah. gather around. But seeing somebody's face when they taste a very, very, very special wine and it's very good. And they're like, whoa, that's so cool. Yeah. That also, the wow factor, the, oh my goodness, this is so good. And I didn't, yeah. that is special to me. So I love wine for that. And then I also love, and it, it, I haven't done it in a while, but I like to rock climb. I used, oh, I used okay. to do a rock climb quite a bit. Um, and that's something that I, I haven't done in a little bit because we were kind of focused on the house and then COVID happened. Yeah. Um, but I love the indoor rock climb. That was a, that's a really fun yes. hobby of mine that I, I need to pick back up again here to get back in shape. I got the COVID uh, 15 <laughs> I think, going on. So yeah, yeah, we, we all do. No rock climbing. I, I've never, I've gone a few times, like on some rock walls and things like that. I always, people that are good at it, it's very, very impressive. Just what, yeah. you know, kind of that that trick skill is set easy yeah right you're like yeah you watch them climb up the wall and you're like oh that looks great i'll go ahead and you're like i'm three feet off the ground just hanging there like i don't know yeah. what to do now and you always forget like when you you know when you go up this way like you have yeah. to pull yourself to the wall and right. so like a lot of times when i get off i'm like oh man i'm like <laughs> in cobra kai right now i got <laughs> I got exactly. a little T-Rex arm. Either that or you're just hanging, uh, you know, dangling from the wall with, with no ability to keep going. Yeah. 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 And then no, the no. worst part, and this is the the thing that you always had to get over, like you have to be comfortable with falling and then knowing your belay is going to, right. you know, not let you drop like free fall for five feet and have a heart attack. Right. right. You're so. not going to just keep falling or splat on the ground or something. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. it's a, definitely a trusting thing with whoever whoever it you're is. partnered with in that it so is. i guess it's a, a metaphor for business probably is it <laughs> yeah you gotta trust who you're uh you're giving your you know my world your uh life savings to or your money right. you know lots of fidelity is required there i would say the same if i'm climbing up 70 foot up a wall and you're holding right. a rope holding me <laughs> yep yep yeah you gotta trust that person holding the rope so yes sir, you do. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good uh it's a good analogy there um, how can people reach you? How, if uh, people hear this and they are interested, how would you like them to contact you? Yeah, best way if you guys wanted to shoot me a direct message and just talk to me and see if maybe that, that I could 
provide some insight or if we could be a good fit for each other to talk and maybe potentially work together or I could help you, you can hit me up on Instagram. My handle is just at rbreedwell, B-R-E-E-D-W-E-L-L. We have a text line for people. Um, if they want information on infinite banking, you can go to um, becomethebank.info and submit a form there. That'll come directly to myself and we can set up an appointment there. You can text the word become the bank to 844-447-1555. And if you're wanting information on your on wealth management, and if you are doing investments yourself and you kind of want a second opinion to see how much you're paying in fees, what you could you know, potentially do to improve that, you can text the word X-ray to that same number, 844-447-1555. And me or my assistant, Phil, We'll get in contact with you and set up a time to get in uh, in a discussion to see if there's anything we can do to help. There's no cost or obligation for any of it. And I would encourage everybody to just take an, take an opportunity um, to look at that. If you think infinite banking could potentially work for you, take a leap of faith. We'll be honest with you and let you know if it's something you can afford. Yeah. And you can also, um, you don't care if I say my podcast. At all. No, no, go ahead, please do. I, I do a podcast every uh, Wednesday with Matt Aitchison on real, real estate investing. We do Wealth Building Wednesdays. It's called Millionaire Mindcast. And I go over infinite banking, market updates and stuff there. So you can also keep up with me uh, either on my Instagram or following me on my podcast as well. Yeah, definitely. And we'll put all of that in the show notes for people too, so they can they can reach you. Uh, that, that's, I, I mean, I would encourage everyone to, to reach out and see, see how you can uh, make your financial health better, I suppose. Um, I guess as the last question, maybe if you could give a few, and you've, you've spilled a ton of, of knowledge and value, maybe a couple of, or even just one piece of advice that you would give to people, you know, sort of coming from a, a scenario of, I want to get my, you know, I want to get my financial house life. in order. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what would you tell people for that? I guess, contact you, which is probably, it's probably yeah, the smartest thing. There's a lot of bias there, but I, if you want to contact me, please feel free to do that. But if I remove me out of the picture, because financial literacy is not done just by me, there's a lot of great guys around the United States that do that. I'd be happy to help anybody. We work in all states. Don't be afraid to do it and stop procrastinating. I know I'm talking to somebody right now that's listening to this or watching this if we're recording, um, but you have to stop procrastinating. You have to take a leap of faith and just be, just know when I do something that's new for me, it is uncomfortable. The growth zone always is. But when you fail, you then have the knowledge of how to succeed. And I would be kicking myself if I was 65 years old and said, man, I wonder what would have happened if I would have looking at the guy next to me who failed 10 times more than me but now is successful at doing those items that I wanted to do because he just took the leap of faith. Don't procrastinate. Work with somebody, find somebody you trust and take that leap of faith. And also know it takes time. Don't forget I said, have a crock pot mentality. It took many years for my investment accounts to look like they did today. But now that I'm sitting here and I look back over the five, six years that I started them, I am so thankful that I did because I'm now beginning rewarded with 50, 60, 70% compounded rates of return on my long-term savings. That didn't happen up front, but it is happening now. So just don't worry about short-term things that get you off your track. Don't be emotional with your money and don't procrastinate with it. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's all great advice. Um, Brian, th thank you so much. I, I think this has been incredibly uh, knowledge-filled and, and helpful to people. I hope that people will reach out to you. Um, and you know, sort of really figure out how they can get things on track. And it's true. I mean, the the advice about not procrastinating it applies to a lot of things in terms of achievement in life. So it's it's excellent advice. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll uh, hopefully talk to you again at some point. Yeah. Maybe we can do a round two. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Have a good day, everyone. I'm gonna sign off.